Worship team, thank you. Tech team, thank you, everyone. And it's a blessing to be up here again. A privilege to speak to you this morning. And I hope you're having a great day, everyone. So good morning. And uh, whether you're here in front of me or you're watching online in other parts of the world, it's great to have you with us. Pray for your Lord's blessing upon you and that you're sensitive And the Holy Spirit will be able to speak to you this morning as we grow through this passage in Isaiah. So this is, I have a message for you today that's good news. Not only good news, it's great news. It's great news about the future. Because we're looking at another passage from Isaiah. And this chapter is often called the Song of Praise. The Song of Praise. It's chapter 26. And if you have your Bible or a device with you, you might want to dial that up because we'll be going through that scripture, scripture in that chapter today. Now, you may think it's not, this is nothing new to Isaiah the prophet to be talking about God's goodness, but this chapter is special. It's special, and you're going to see why very soon. If we look at chapter 26, it begins with, in that day, His words are in that day, and it's thought that Isaiah is reflecting back to the previous two chapters where he describes a day of judgment of the Lord, when God will completely devastate the earth, a day of judgment when God will completely devastate the earth, and all mankind will be affected. Because if we reflect back two chapters from chapter 24, we learn that mankind has disobeyed his laws. They've broken covenant with him. They've brought a curse upon themselves. And the people are bearing their guilt. The people are bearing their guilt. But then chapter 25 brings us good news and tells us that in the end, God will gather his people for a banquet for those who have turned to God with humility and faith. Those those of us who are believing in Jesus, for those of us like us whose trust is in God, there will be a feast There'll be a feast and great blessings. And now, not only the faithful Israelites will be invited, but also God-fearing peoples from all the earth, from the whole earth. And people will say that we trusted in him. Verse 9, we trusted in him, and he saved us. But for those whose trust is in themselves, in their pride and cleverness, God will bring terrible destruction. And Isaiah writes that their fortified walls will be destroyed to the dust. The things they have held on to, the things that they've that have bolstered them up in a sense in the past will be destroyed to the dust. So now we're into chapter 26, and this is a song sung by the believers. It's a song of praise for final deliverance from sin and wickedness, for final deliverance from sin and wickedness. And we look today at how to trust God how to trust God as we look forward to Jesus' return. The ones who will enter the city of God at the end of time are those whose trust is in God, are those whose trust is in God. So let's take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, we just enter into your presence this morning, just as we prayed already, but we continue to pray, and we ask specifically for this passage of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit will open it up to our minds, to our hearts, that we would discern what we need to learn from this, from the words of your book, words of your scripture, and you would speak to us clearly and and interpret 
these words for the needs in, in our lives. Thank you that we can come together. We just think of uh, Kevin, our pastor, as uh, as Paul has mentioned, Kevin, Danielle, his kids, Cameron and Samantha. They're at a funeral for his aunt in North Bay. So we pray, Lord, for them that you would bring comfort, encouragement, wisdom as they as they interact with their family members. Some of them are not do not know you, Lord Jesus. So we pray that you will provide for their needs. And we look forward to their return to us very shortly. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's interesting how Isaiah contrasts the blessings of God at the end of time with the judgments upon the wicked. If we look at through this, this chapter, he talks about blessings and then he talks about judgments. He talks about blessings and judgments. So it goes back and forth. For example, verses 1 to 4 are blessings, and then verses 5 and 6 say how the oppressed and poor will trample down those who depend on their pride to save themselves. We go to verses 7 to 9. God teaches the world righteousness. And then verses 10 and 11 say that God's enemies will be consumed by fire. Verses 12, 13, 15, gain glory for God. It talks about how God will gain glory for himself. But verse 14 says the memory of other lords over Israel will be wiped out. And finally, Isaiah closes with verses about the final resurrection of the dead and the final punishment of the wicked. The resurrection of the dead for those who believe in him, the final punishment of the wicked. So I think while Isaiah is anxious to encourage God's people by reminding them of the external blessings to come, which is a great encouragement for us as well, his warning is ever-present to others of the disaster, the disaster that awaits them if they disobey God's covenant. So the theme of our message today is trust, trusting in God, trusting in God. So I'm going to start off with the first six verses of Isaiah 26. And feel free to read along in your own verse version if you have it. So chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. Those who are oppressed, those who are poor, the uh, marginalized in society will be trampling down things, those who dwell on high. So our first theme that we're looking at is trusting God in action. We're looking at trusting God in action in in these verses. And it opens this chapter on a note of thanks for God's deliverance by reminding his readers about the city of God, city of God, that God has prepared for the faithful. 
Its walls are made strong with the salvation that God has provided. Its gates are open for all peoples, not only the Israelites, but for people from all nations who have faith in God. And here is our first reference to the theme of trust. In verse 3, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. So God is promising peace to those who are trusting God. For the Lord is called the rock, and he's perfectly trustworthy. He's perfectly trustworthy. We can trust God because he is worthy of our trust. Now, we're talking a lot about trust today, and you might ask, what is trust? What is trust? And I read a story recently about a man. He was a higher wire performer, and he ran a wire across Niagara Falls. And he w- his intent was to... Uh, sit on a bicycle and ride across Niagara Falls, riding on his bicycle across this high wire. And uh, before he left, he asked the audience if they thought he could do it. He could make it across without falling into the water. And they all cheered. They say, yes, yes, I'm, we're sure you can do it. You go for it. No problem. And then he asked if anyone would volunteer to come with him in the basket there was a basket attached to the bicycle. Would anyone like to join me in this basket, in the, this wonderful ride and wonderful view? And no one responded. No one uh, put their hand up and was willing to do that. Everyone believed he could do it, but no one was willing to go along for the ride. So from the history that they heard about this man, they believed he can do it. So in their head, they believed he could do it. And they might have had faith as well, faith that is, in fact, He believed it. He's done it before. We're sure he can do it. But what was missing? What was missing? And let's look at three ways that I can see in which we can relate to something as being true. So the first approach is belief. It's kind of mental acceptance of a claim is true, says the dictionary. Mental acceptance that the claim is true. These people have reasoned that this high wire performer can actually get across without falling. They've seen evidence that that's the case. They might have seen it on a movie or whatever, and they read about it. And they've, they want to do the true thing. They want to do what it's, they don't want any fake news here. They, want, they believe that he can do it in, his mind, in their minds. But a more deeper approach is faith. And a dictionary definition of faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. So it includes belief in the mind and the heart as well kind of a belief system. And Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So I think they had belief that he could do it, but they had faith as well. You know, they really were strongly convinced that he was able to do it. But faith, when developed or mature, matured, leads to trust. Leads to trust. And again, from the dictionary, Trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, or ability of someone or something. So it's a firm belief in the reliability, truth, or ability of someone or something. What's the difference? Trust results in action. Trust results in action. It's not just head knowledge, not just heart knowledge, but it's working it out in how we live. So 
That's trusting God, trusting God in action. I wondered how this would work with these papers, and I don't want to skip the page. Here we are. (laughs) So we don't just believe it's true. We don't just believe in our heart that it's true. We're willing to step out and take action. So in uh, the book of John, verse 14, this is the New Living Translation. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. And NIV and NASB uses the words belief, believe in God, and believe also in me. So faith in God is believing that God is who he says he is and that what he can do, only God can do. Faith in God is believing that God is who he says he is and that what he can do, what God can do, only he can do. And again, trust takes things a step further. It is making the willful choice to trust that God will do what he promises. A willful choice to believe that God will do what he promises. And again, from verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Perfect peace comes to us when we trust in him. The head versus the heart versus the willingness to act in obedience. So for Isaiah, it is trust in the righteousness of the covenant of God. Trust in the righteousness of the law of God, of the way that we are to act before God. And it shows inner integrity and it shows complete dependence upon God. Trust shows inner integrity and a complete dependence upon God. So we're kept in perfect peace, says Isaiah in verse 3, when our actions show that we trust God, our faith is shown in action. Uh, So I have to ask you, are you longing for peace in your life? Perfect peace? I know I could use a lot more of it, quite frankly. And again, verse 4, just... Branching to verse 4, Isaiah writes, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. Keep your mind steadfast on Jesus. Learn to trust God in the challenges of life. And that's our big idea for today. Trust in God and hold fast to Jesus. Trust in God, hold fast to Jesus. So let's step back a little bit. Let's step back a bit to verse 2 where it says, Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. The nation that keeps faith. So we want to trust God in righteous living. Trust God in righteous living. So we learn as well that it's the nation that keeps faith, the righteous nation that will enter God's kingdom. And some would believe that one becomes righteous by obedience to the law. Do not kill, do not steal, do not envy. We may think we become righteous by having a mindset of acting in a certain way. In a way we think that pleases God. By following the law, by following the uh, commands that we learn from the Old Testament, is that what makes, is that what pleases God? That our actions will determine our righteousness. But Paul writes in Romans 3.20 that no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. 
The law makes us conscious of our inability to give up to go, give, live up to God's law for our lives. Our inclination to sin, our inclination to miss the mark. That is another word, inter- interpretation of the word sin. On an archery range, when you miss the, the bullseye, you're sinning. You're missing the mark. And it's so easy for us to miss the mark what God is, wants us to, the way want, God wants us to live our lives. So Jesus says that righteousness is something rather that we must seek. So God isn't, we don't uh, obtain righteousness by the works of the law. Righteousness is something that we seek. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So where do we find this righteousness? In fact, Paul says that God's righteousness is given freely to anyone and everyone who has faith in Jesus. So when we have faith in Jesus, God's righteousness is given to us freely. From Romans 3.21, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We do not need to earn it. It's given to us freely. And that fits in neatly to Isaiah verse 2, where the gates are open for the righteous nation, the one who keeps faith. The one who keeps faith is the righteous nation and where they receive righteousness and the gates are open for them. So again, to summarize, those who have trust in the Lord will have perfect peace. And that is the nation who will be called righteous. And in verse two, only the righteous nation will enter the strong city of God. Only the righteous nation will enter the strong city of God. So let's look at trusting God in life's choices, trusting God in the choices we have to make in life. And we'll carry on with Isaiah 26. This is from verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. So Isaiah is speaking of the righteous believer who is following God's laws. And verse 7 says that the path that the person is walking on is level and smooth. And they walk in a way that's obeying God's laws, but are waiting for God at the same time. Verse 7, you make the, or verse 8, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. And So the Christian life involves walking and waiting, walking in a way that pleases God and waiting on him so as not not to turn in the wrong direction. Both walking and waiting, it sounds contradictory. How can we walk and wait at the same time? I think sometimes when we're seeking to follow God, we head in a direction that God is directing us to. So we're off to a good start. God says, go in this direction and off we go. But we hit a fork in the road, or we have some choices to make along the way, and we just choose a direction that we think maybe is the easiest, or 
the most convenient, most efficient, and we head off in that direction without stopping. We've had a good start. We've been on our, we've been motivated, heading the path, and then we have a choice to make. And sometimes we just think, well, let's go this way. It seems like the right thing. But that's when we're likely to wander from God's will. That's when we're likely to go off in the wrong direction. And Jesus would we'd rather would rather we pause at the fork, pause at that fork and wait for his guidance. Just pause and wait for his guidance. Because it may take some time to hear from him the way to proceed. And many times I have made the wrong choice in my walk with God and I've had to backtrack to a safe place before proceeding knowing that the direction is right. I remember, I remember seeing a picture years ago of a believer climbing a mountain, and he wanted to reach the summit of the mountain. He could see the summit in the distance up, in, up, up on high, but he's following a path, and the path is smooth and clear of rocks, but it weaves back and forth. It's taking him slowly up the mountain. A more direct route is straight up the mountain, because he can see the summit right there before him, but it would mean crossing a huge field of rocks and gullies and streams and possibly getting hurt and delayed. God's way, the slower way perhaps, the smooth way, may not appear to be the best, but it's level and smooth. God's always going to lead you in a way that gets you to the destination safely. It reminds me as well of the story of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings when he's guiding the Fellowship of the Ring through the caves of Moria. And he's been in those caves years ago. He's made his way through successfully before, but it was a long time ago, and he can't quite remember which way to go. And they come to a fork in the road, and he doesn't remember which way is the right one. Each one looks kind of equivalent. So they've got to this place, there's a fork, there's a road that goes to the left, one to the right. Which one should he lead the people in? And if he goes in the wrong way, it would lead to certain death for sure. But the party with him gets very impatient with him because he sits down, he pulls out his pipe, and he just uh, relaxes there for a long time. And they get very impatient because he might be waiting for hours or days. The The story doesn't say how long he's waiting, but he's waiting for guidance. And finally, he has the direction he needs and chooses the right path. It kind of reminds me of the way that God might be leading us. We're on our way. We know the right direction, but then we've got a fork in the road. Where should we turn? It's best to sit and wait and hear the direction from God. Because waiting can be awkward and can be embarrassing. It can be tough, but it's worth the wait because Jesus might be protecting us from dangers ahead that will pass when he says the way is clear. So do we want to find the way that's level and smooth for our lives? Again, we're trusting in God. We're holding fast to Jesus. The next point is trusting God and watching him. So let's look at verse 9. And Isaiah writes, My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of 
the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Now, back in verse 2, we learned about righteous people. We read about righteous people, and we know we're made righteous by trusting in Jesus. And we learn more about righteous people from verses 8 and 9. Again, from verse 8, we learn that righteous people wait on God, and they walk in God's truth, and they desire God's name to be renowned. And here from verse 9, we learn righteous people yearn for God. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. It speaks about God's people longing for God in the night and during the day. Their desire is to see God's name and renown lifted up. They learn righteousness from God's judgments on the earth. They learn righteousness from God's judgments on the earth. So how do we learn how to behave as righteous people? How do we learn how to behave as righteous people? Isaiah says that we learn by watching how God, God judges the world. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. We learn when God judges the world. We learn when God judges us as well. From Hebrews 12, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trusted by it. So again, from verse 10, we experience the grace of God as well. It talks about grace being shown to the wicked, but certainly grace is shown to the believers as also. And we see the majesty of the Lord. For the wicked do not learn righteousness from God's grace that is distributed to everyone. And the wicked do not regard the majesty of the Lord, but we see the majesty of the Lord, and we witness the Lord's zeal for his people. And then Isaiah reminds us of the final judgment in verse 10 and 11, where uh, yeah, 10 and 11, where the evil people see grace and regard the majesty of the Lord, but they don't recognize it in their lives. They don't receive it to their lives. And it talks about the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. So grace does not wipe out justice. I think that's what we're saying from verse 10. God is a God of grace and love. God is a God of justice as well. Those two characteristics of him are coexistent. They work together. But if there's a challenge, if, there, if there's a uh, dispute between them, which holds out. I remember years ago, the March for Jesus was in Ottawa, and Greenbelt was a big part of that. And Graham Kendrick sang songs regarding the March for Jesus, and one of the things he said was, Mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. So when we're in a situation where God is uh, judging people and has mercy as well, his mercy will triumph. But for those who do not have their sins covered by the blood of Christ, then his mercy, then his mercy is, uh, the justice is not, his justice takes, takes 
a greater effect there because uh, Christ has not paid the penalty for those sins and his mercy has not able to to cleanse those people from from their sins and the sins of mankind will not go unpunished the sins of mankind will be punished because God is a just God as well and no enemy can defeat God's plan no enemy of God can defeat his plan for man So let's go on. Now we're looking at trusting God by honoring him, trusting God by honoring him alone. This is from verse 12. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honor. They're now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. For you punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. So we've looked at ways to ensure we have a place in the new heaven that Jesus will establish by seeking righteousness and depending on God. And these things all seem to be for our benefit things that God gives to us but what does God require from us in return does God require anything from us in return and verse 12 reminds us that you've established peace for us and that all that we have accomplished you have done for us so we give God the credit for every gift of mercy that he provides to us he's given us peace and expanded the boundaries of our land And just in case we're becoming proud and self-confident, Isaiah reminds us that we are not the ones that have brought salvation to people. As he mentions in verse 18, we're not able to create new life, and it's only God can do that. Here's a quote from Paul in Acts 17. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So again, verse 13 reads, Your name alone do we honor. And that's it. That's what God requires of us. What does God require from us? He wants us to honor him. God asks us to honor him. Above all rulers, above above life's priorities, above what we have done for God in his name, we want God to gain glory for himself. And it's for his name and in Jesus' name alone to receive the glory. It's for God. God's name and in Jesus name alone to receive the glory. So our last point is we trust God in the resurrection of his people. We trust God in the resurrection of his people. So from verse 19, chapter 26, Isaiah writes, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning, 
the earth will give birth to her dead. That's the hope. That's the hope for the resurrection of God's people. And we need to hold fast to that. We need to hold fast to the belief that we will be resurrected at the end of time. And that's the final answer to all of Earth's questions. You know, where did we come from? Who is God? Why is there sin in the world? Why is there no justice in the world? How did the world begin? All these questions that people have. Resurrection, when we're resurrected and we meet with Jesus, we'll have the final answer to all those questions. Because the life of faith is not in vain. The life of faith in Jesus is not in vain. And I think of those who suffer for the faith in other parts of the world where they, by believing in God, they risk their lives and they risk the lives of their loved ones. The life of faith is not in vain. So what does that really mean for me? What does this really mean for me? Trusting God in the resurrection. And if you do not know know Jesus personally, this last point is especially for you. Because again, in verse 19, or we'll just read it again. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. The dead in Christ will rise at the end of time. And it will be a time of exceeding joy and praise to God when that time comes. But if you do not know Jesus personally, if you don't know him personally in your life, this might be your time to come to him. Jesus is holding his hands out to you to embrace you and welcome you into his kingdom. So all you need to do is say a simple prayer like, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I lived my life. Apart from your guidance, I've lived my life on my own. Please forgive my faults. I believe you are the Holy One of God. If you've taken that step, let us know if you're online or here in the building. Please come up and speak to us after the service. We want to worship with you. We want to rejoice with you. And I'll say to most of us here who are believers, if you are a believer, but maybe you've wandered away many years ago from the level, smooth path that God has set out for you. You started off at a good point. You started off in a good direction. But you've realized, well, you're stranded in the woods. You don't know where to go. Um, you've made a false step. You've, you've chosen the wrong path at some point. But now is the time to set your life back. It's not too late. It's not too late. Tell Jesus you're sorry for disobeying his direction in your life and want to get back on track. Tell him you're sorry. Repent of the mistakes you've made in the past, and he will forgive you because of Jesus, and he'll find another level and smooth path path for you to take. You don't have to go all the way back to where you were. God will establish a new path for you by doing that. So we need to trust God in action. We trust God in righteous living. We trust God in life's choices. We trust God in watching him by honoring him alone and in the resurrection of his people. And there is the lasting hope for God's people. It's the final answer for all of Earth's questions. The life of faith in Jesus is not in vain. So I'm going to give us a moment now to for quiet prayer. 
I'll close our time in a, in a short period, but I'll give you a chance to pray. If you have something to say to God at that time, I'll allow you to do that in quiet, and then I will close in prayer. Lord God, you are so good to us, and your love endures forever for us. And we thank you that we can trust you. We thank, thank you that we can put our faith completely in you. And, and we hold fast to that, Lord. We hold fast to the promise of the resurrection. Hold fast to the province of your, promise of your guidance, your truth, your provision for our lives. So we just want to say, Lord, we, we believe that, and we want to embrace it. And we want to hold on to that. And uh, we do give you all the praise and honor and glory for what you've done and what you continue to do in our lives. So bless us today, Lord, if, if we've brought a prayer for you of entreatment. Lord, we pray that you would answer those prayers and that you would uh, reassure, reassure us, Lord, of your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.